All right, Stonebridge Bible Church, take your Bibles and turn with me initially to Luke 15. Luke 15. If you're new with us, we've been going through a study in the short book of Jonah. And we started our series by asking the question, what is the heart of God actually like? What is God like? Does he begrudgingly bestow mercy on sinners? Does he delight in exercising his wrath? Or does God delight and the free gift of his grace to undeserving sinners. What is the heart of God like? Now to answer that question regarding the heart of God, we must turn once again to the word of God where God reveals who he is. Now in Luke 15, we come to an interesting really account and there's three consecutive stories, the last of which you're most likely familiar with. But in Luke 15, uh, verse one, it says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, that's Jesus, to listen to him. Tax collectors, we looked at this type of a figure a few weeks ago. There is no moral equivalent to that of a tax collector. They were the scum of the society. They had betrayed their own people to continue to fund the regime of Rome that murdered, raped, and dominated their own people. There is nobody more hated at the time Jesus is conducting his ministry than that of a tax collector. But that is the exact type of person that is flocking to Jesus. But it's not just the tax collectors. It says the tax collectors and sinners. This is a broad category, but it includes really two types of people in particular, prostitutes and adulterers. So Jesus, if you want to understand his ministry, he has people gathering around him that are not the religious elite. It's the religious elite who hate Jesus and murder Jesus. It's sinners that Jesus is spending his time with. It says in verse two, both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble, that's the religious elite, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's hanging out with the scum. And Jesus knows everything, he knows their heart. John 2.25 says he doesn't need anyone to testify concerning man, why? Because he already knows what is within the heart of every single man. And so he hears their grumbling, they're complaining and they're snickering. And he responds by telling them three consecutive stories that reveal for them that they have missed the heart of God categorically. The first of those stories we see in verse three. So he told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, comma, what's that next word? Say it with me. What's that next word? This is going to be a theme today. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, comma, what's that next word? Rejoice. Rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more, what? Talk to me. Joy, Joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We're going to get to this in a moment, but you need to understand. Last week, we talked about that God hates sin. Psalm 711 says that he is a righteous judge and he, he has righteous indignation towards the wicked every single day. But if we left it there and didn't talk about chapter four of Jonah, and we'll get to this in a moment, we miss the heart of God. When you think about heaven, you need to think of a place that is full of unparalleled, unrivaled joy because God is a God of profound joy. He made it. He's the author of it. That's why we say this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's why we call Sunday the Lord's day. It's a day of great joy, but God is a God of great joy. And then there's this next parable in 15.8. It says, or what woman, if she has a t 10 silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, comma, what's that next word? Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The last of the three stories that Jesus tells is the longest, and it's the one you're most familiar with, and it's the story of a lost son. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Prodigal goes away into the far country. He spends his father's inheritance. He says, I wish you were dead. Give me the money that I would get when you die so that I can go and live it up. He goes and lives it up and he finds himself in the muck and the mire of the pig pen. And he says, what am I doing here? Even my father's servants have more than I have now. And he comes to the end of himself. And he returns to his father and thinks, well, at least at that point I can be one of his slaves. 
But it says in verse 20 of Luke 15, so he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again, for he was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Verse 31, he's talking to the elder brother. The prodigal son is the third most important character in the story of the prodigal son. It's a story primarily about the elder brother where God exposes the heart of the Pharisees. Then it's a story that reveals the heart of the father. But he's talking to the elder brother in verse 31. He says, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. These Pharisees and these scribes, they think they know the Bible backwards and forwards. They don't understand a lick, though, about the true nature of God. So God tells them who he is. And he says, if you want to understand something about God, you need to know Stonebridge Bible Church. He is a God of great joy. And every single time one sinner repents, God says in heaven, start the party. Where's that joy? Where's that joy? If you've been saved by God, where's the joy? Because God is a God of profound joy. And he's not waiting for a whole multitude to get saved he doesn't say, ah, well, we got one more, Gabriel, okay. No, he's saying, hey, that's one sinner who would otherwise go to a Christless eternity in hell and he's been lost and now he's found. Let us celebrate and rejoice. And he's exposing the Pharisees. You don't know anything about the heart of God unless you know that God loves, capital L, capital O-V-E-S, I spell right, loves, loves, loves to save sinners. Okay, back to Jonah. Great stories are supposed to have great endings. But as we will soon observe, this story possesses anything but that. It ends on a sour note. The Oxford Dictionary defines anticlimax as a disappointing end to an exciting or impressive series of events. And if there is one story in the Bible that fits the description of anticlimactic, it's that of Jonah. There's a puzzling conclusion. In chapter two, if you've been with us, God saves Jonah from the raging Mediterranean by sending a fish that would swallow him up and save his life. In chapter three, Jonah is spit up and he's recommissioned to go once again to the land of Nineveh. And when he arrives in Nineveh, we looked at this last week, the people are going about their lives as they typically would. They're doing their chores, they're eating, they're drinking, they're being merry in the morning. And by the evening, they are shaken to their core. They're on their knees, sackcloth and ashes, pouring out their hearts, pleading for the mercy of God. It's the greatest revival in human history. Remember, we looked at this. God is not mildly displeased by sin. It's not irking to God. He abhors sin. God hates sin, but he loves to show mercy. And it's always in the heart of God that people that would hear of their impending doom and judgment turn to God and receive his mercy so how does Jonah respond to the success in chapter three? I mean, of course, this is God's man communicating God's message to a pagan people. And you would think that God would, or Jonah would respond and rejoice that he had a small part in this great revival. I mean, I want you just to imagine, let's say one of these guys, let's say um, one of you walks into the Bay Area, San Francisco. There's like a city that's known for maybe the progressive agenda. Um, you could pick that, a number of others in the US. You could pick Nashville, right? I want you to imagine someone walks in and says, 40 days in Nashville, 
San Francisco, Los Angeles will be overthrown. And they all repent. There are many people that would die to be a part of that. What if our entire nation had a day of repentance? All the sexual deviance, all the violence, and all the cultural Christians who mock God by playing church and living like the world 167 hours a week. What if they all repented? How would you respond? Well, how does Jonah respond? Look with me at 4.1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. In Hebrew, it means that this became a great evil to Jonah. While God had turned from his anger in chapter 3, verse 10, Jonah's anger in 4.1 begins to erupt. In verse 2 of chapter 4, Jonah will begin to pray. His first prayer in chapter 2 was from the depths of Sheol, and his second prayer is from the depths of his rage. In both instances, Jonah was consumed. The first by the great fish, and second, he's consumed by his great anger. Jonah doesn't share in the heart of God because he does not understand the heart of God. There's such a vast difference between the response of the sailors who in chapter one have this amazing awe at the storm's cessation and stillness. And yet when God stills the storm of his anger towards pagan Nineveh, Jonah boils over. What displeases Jonah? Well, the fact that God had extended mercy. These people would have been pricked by Jonah's preaching. We looked at this last week that Jonah's message was short. It's five Hebrew words and eight words in English and there were three realities that were made evident within his sermon. Your sin is great. It's not a mild misdemeanor. Your time is short, 40 days. And you'll be overthrown. Your judgment, third, is sure. And they are instantly broken and there's no level of presumption on the mercy of God. It says in Jonah 3, 9, the king says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. And they lived those next 40 days, the city of Nineveh did, in total prayer, in hope. But I want you just to picture Jonah. Jonah preaches his message. He obeys what he has to do. But there's no inclusion of the text that Jonah stays in the city and it's a Geneva type of revival and he's discipling people and he's going house to house saying, I want you to understand the ways and the word of God. Oh, please, oh, please, let me walk you through the character of God. Let me tell you about what he's done for us. Let me tell you about how he's a faithful God. No, the story reads in such a way whereas you need to understand that Jonah preaches what he has to preach. He goes outside the city, finds a neighboring hill and he begins to wait and this is how Jonah begins to function. Day two. Do it, God. Sodom and Gomorrah, these pagan dogs. Consume them with the full bowl of your wrath. Day three, no judgment. Do it, God. Do it. Day five. Where are you, God? Every day they live. It's a mockery to your name. Day 35, do it. Day 36, come on, God. Day 39, last chance, God. Day 40, no judgment. Just mercy from God who relented after they repented. And it tells us in four that this ticked Jonah off. I've mentioned this before, that the men of God most mightily used in scripture are brought down to the level of mere mortals by the transparent inclusion of their sin. Abraham lied, David killed Uriah, committed adultery, Noah got drunk. Moses disobeyed, Peter denied Jesus. And in chapter four of Jonah, Jonah resents the very mercy that had saved him. The irony here is thick. The people of Nineveh are repentant and broken. 
But Jonah is furious and fuming over the thought that God had extended mercy. But why is Jonah angry? I think for a few reasons. Number one, Jonah is angry for Jonah's sake. The criteria for a prophet was that their prophecies came to pass. Deuteronomy 18 is very clear in this way. One of the ways you know if a prophet is actually from God is if their prophecies come to pass. Jonah had given no qualification to his message of doom and gloom. He just says 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He doesn't say, hey, 40 days, and if you guys don't do X, Y, and Z, you're gonna get judgment. He just pronounces the doom. And so now if God shows them mercy, Jonah's gonna lose his credibility. Jonah's reputation was on the line. He is more concerned about his own name than he is God's name. But as Sinclair Ferguson notes, God is more concerned, far more concerned about the salvation of the lost than he is the preservation of the reputation of those who are already saved. So Jonah is angry for Jonah's sake. Secondly, Jonah is angry for Israel's sake. Jonah knew that the Assyrians were likely going to be those who God would use as the instruments of his righteous anger and justice towards his disobedient and rebellious people. Jonah is concerned for the Jewish people. This, we said in week one, this would be like knowing that a terrorist group of people were going to destroy your own family and then being used by God to bring about their own preservation so that in 20 years time, they would actually be able to do that. Jonah believes that the people of God should receive mercy and that everyone else should receive wrath. Third, I think Jonah is maybe even angry for God's sake. Jonah becomes much like Satan in this regard. God, if you show them mercy, they're going to think you're weak, you're pathetic. People are gonna trample on your grace. You know why Satan's predominant name in scripture is the accuser? Because what he does day and night is accuse the brethren before God. God, they don't deserve your mercy. They're worthless. They'll sin again, God. And Jonah's looking at God and he is saying, they don't deserve it, but I do. Jonah is missing the central tenet of salvation. And you know what that is? It's our solidarity with the most lost people there are. When you forget that you are lost, you inevitably become self-righteous. And self-righteous people don't understand the rationale behind God's mercy when it doesn't extend to someone they think deserves it. In Jonah's anger, Jonah will declare one of the most profound confessions of God's character in all of scripture, in the following verse. And ironically, this great confession is going to be proclaimed by someone who doesn't possess an ounce of the character he confirms is true of God. He had been the recipient of what he's about to declare, but he is seething mad when those same realities are extended to other people. Jonah's entire life is a massive contradiction. Jonah would have claimed to love the truth. He would have been very familiar with the truth, but although he's familiar with the truth, he's very unfamiliar with the heart of God. And he's beginning to realize this is who God is and was all along. Look with me at verse two. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah says, I knew it, God you can't help yourself, can you, God? You're so merciful. You're so gracious. This is why I fled in the first place. Because you're always true to yourself. It's wrong when you extend mercy to others, but it makes sense when you extend mercy to me. After all, I'm me. Jonah seeks to justify his sin by pitting the words of God against God. Jonah was, was restored by God's grace, but he doesn't want God to restore anyone else. And his confession with his lips is less important to him than the conformity of his life to the confession he makes. I want to examine this verse closely because it's so rich, rich in truth about God. As Lewis Johnson used to say that this verse is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And any doubt rem 
just kind of remaining regarding Jonah's former flight is going to evaporate right now because Jonah is about to bemoan the fact that God is consistent with his revealed character. I want you to see this parallel passage. Take your Bible and turn with me to Exodus 32 for a minute. I want you to see this. This is a great theme in scripture. And Jonah, what's interesting, is almost every single word he utters throughout the book is a reference to scripture. He knows the Bible. In, Psalm, or in chapter two, if you remember, when Jonah is in the belly of the great fish, he has no original thought. He's just beginning to repeat the words of God to God himself. He is saturated and seeped in God's word. And you know what's scary? He's never been changed by it. Exodus 32, let me just paint the picture and set the scene for you. Moses goes up the mountain. He's about to come back down the mountain with tablets and he gets down from the mountain and the people that God had just delivered out of the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, look what they're doing in verse four of chapter 32. He took this from their hand, that's their gold, and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God. That's the golden calf, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Moses sees what's happening. He smashes the tablets, goes to God. Oh God, they should be destroyed. Don't destroy them. Chapter 33, at the lowest point in his life, after understanding the fickleness of the people of God, Moses prays in 33 verse 18, I pray you, oh God, show me your glory. And I want you to know that when Moses asked God to show him his glory, the most glorious thing God is going to do is he's going to reveal something that's true about his nature, about his character. He doesn't say mountain, boom. He passes by him, but he proclaims his character in order that Moses would understand the glory of God. If you wanna know the glory of God, you need to know his character. And so watch this. It says in 33, 19, and he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be, watch this, gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Look with me at 34, verse six, next chapter. Same context. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, or Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. God says, I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 86 for a moment. Psalm 86. Look, at me, uh, look with me at verse 15. It says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. You don't need to turn there, but let me read Nehemiah 9, 17 for you. It says, but you are, are, are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Nehemiah 9.17, here's Nehemiah 9.31. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Last week I said, if you miss the justice of God, you don't understand the nature of God. And it would equally be true to say, if when you think of God, you don't think gracious and compassionate, you don't know God as revealed in his word. When God reveals himself, he starts this way. I am a God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. I wanna look at each of these words that Jonah says. You can turn back there for a moment. Jonah says, first of all, that I knew you were a God who was gracious. That's the Hebrew word, chanun. And this is the great theme of this small book. God is gracious. If someone ever told you that the Old Testament is the book about God's wrath and the New Testament is the book about God's mercy and grace, they have never read the short story of Jonah. 
It's not Jesus who begs the father to show mercy. It's the father who sends the son because God has been, will always be, and will never change from being a God who is rich in mercy, overflowing with grace. He is eager to save the lost. He delights in exercising mercy. Jonah's main problem here is not just that God is gracious, but that Jonah resents that God is sovereign in the bestowing of his grace. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever grasped the grace of God? Or maybe to put it another way, have you ever been grasped by grace in the sense where it seized you with awe, arrested you with wonder, Jonah is condemning God by saying, you really operate in a way that does not make any sense. And do you know what? Unless you begin to view grace that way, you do not understand it. If you understand God's grace in your own mind, that is the proof you do not understand it. Meaning, well, if God was gracious to me for X, Y, and Z, If the only definition or the reasoning behind grace is that it makes no sense to you, that's how you know you've begun to grasp it. But Jonah had rationale thinking. Of course God was gracious to me. I'm the son of Amittai, the dove of faithfulness. I am him who is next. Elijah with the Lord, Elisha with the Lord. Onto the scene, step me. He says, I knew you were gracious. Secondly, he says, I know you are compassionate. God has great pity on those who are pitiful. We looked at Psalm 103 this summer and it says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. God is lofty and exalted, but you know what? He takes great pity and compassion on the low. He cares Psalm 103, verse eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. This word for compassionate is used only of God in the Old Testament because there's no one else that is as compassionate as God. Then Jonah says, you're slow to anger. God is a patient God Here is Jonah who is so quick to anger. He's constantly displeased and he's arguing with a God who reveals himself to be over and over and over again, slow to anger. You know why God is slow to anger? Because he's gracious. Because he longs for people to come to him in repentance. Maybe there's people in your life that have a short fuse. Maybe you're that person, but that's not God. He has a long fuse because he wants people to hear the message of the gospel and be restored and repent. His love is abounding and has no limit, but his patience does, however. There are people here today that are abusing the patience of God, that trample underfoot the grace of God and make a mockery of God by saying, oh, he'll be patient with me. Those are also people that are testing it. So do not presume upon God's patience, but rejoice that he has been patient with you. And then Jonah says, you are abundant in loving kindness. This is God's said love. It's a special word in the Hebrew language and it refers to God's covenantal kindness and love towards those who are undeserving. God's loving kindness is his patient, intentional, personal, constant, undeserved love. And God is abounding in this type of love. It doesn't just say that God is possessing of loving kindness. He's abundant in it. I told you before, I'm one of seven children. And so when we used to go visit our family and we would fly, my brother and I would have to share a suitcase. The problem is we wanted to bring all of our stuff, all of our shoes. We had to show off, you know, you plan the outfits and, but we had to share it, but we had a system. You sit on it, I'll zip it. (laughs) But that's because the suitcase was overflowing And when the Bible speaks of the love of God, it doesn't say God has a 12 ounce love. It's he is the fountain of love. He is overflowing, abundant in loving kindness. This is the word that's used to define what marriage is. It's a willed intention to love someone else till death do us part. 
In a marriage, the love of the heart may sometimes falter or fail. But when that fails, there's the love of commitment and covenant pledge. You know why God cares so much about marriage? Do you know why it's worth preaching what the Bible says about marriage? We've talked about this. Because it's the most important metaphor in the Bible that describes the relationship between Christ and his church. So when people distort what marriage is, they're distorting the relationship between Jesus and that for which he died. And Jonah declares all of these realities. And he shows us that it's possible to make a great proclamation of God's amazing grace and matchless mercy and not have your heart changed at all by that mercy or that grace at all. God has been soft, kind, and compassionate to Jonah, but Jonah is hard-hearted and hateful towards the Ninevites. Jonah misunderstands God. And he thinks he's the one that knows God the best. So how does God respond to this runaway, rebellious prophet? Does he strike him dead? No. God consistently acts in accordance with the character that he has already revealed in his word. Aren't you glad God is slow to anger? So he asked Jonah a question. Now before we get to the question, it's worth noting that this is the way God typically responds to his wayward creatures throughout his word. He asked Adam, where are you? He asked Elijah, what are you doing here? And when Job questions God, God questions Job. Because these questions that God asks are not because God needs to know answers, but he's trying to elicit self-examination and to prick and probe their conscience so that they begin to think. Because you're made in the image of God, you possess something that God has, which is a mind. And he's trying to reason with Jonah. And in the same manner, God in chapter four is going to pose three probing questions to Jonah. And those questions function as the climax of this book. Chapter four, just look at verse three with me for a moment because you'll see how mad Jonah is. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for death is better to me than life. Then the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? There's no answer to this question because there's no good reason for Jonah to be angry. The answer is obvious. Jonah should have been pricked and probed by this question, yet he still wants the city destroyed. And so God begins to, to work with him. Jonah, you didn't repent till I had you thrown into a sea, swallowed by a great fish, spit out from that great fish, and you preached five words and the entire city of Nineveh is brought to their knees. And what unfolds throughout the rest of this chapter is a drama, a drama where God is going to provide a plant, a worm, and a wind to teach Jonah a lesson about the heart of God and reveal the inconsistency of Jonah's own heart. It says in verse five, then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Jonah makes for himself a little booth. Since the landscape of Nineveh in modern day Iraq is hot and arid, there was very little shade to protect Jonah from the scorching sun. So Jonah provides for himself a little oasis, a private retreat, a resort where he can watch and see what God does to the city. Hopefully in Jonah's mind, he'll still bring about his wrath. Now watch this in verse six. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. There's four times in Jonah that this word appointed is used. God appoints a great wind, then he appoints a great fish, then he appoints a great plant, then he's gonna appoint a little worm. And they're all intended to draw us to the reality of the providence of God. And this plant that Jonah sits next to is not some normal plant that springs up overnight in any normal occurrence, but this is a miracle. God had caused a plant to grow overnight that would protect Jonah from the heat of the sun and shield Jonah from its scorching rays. In Hebrew, it says that this plant delivered Jonah. It says that it saved him. But what does the plant save Jonah from? Well, it tells us. It says to deliver him, 6b, from his discomfort, from the heat of the day, so the God who had provided a great fish to save Jonah is the same God who's going to provide a great plant to save Jonah from his discomfort and the heat of the Near Eastern desert. And listen to the irony here. How does Jonah respond? It says, and Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. He is elated. He's exceedingly happy. He's rejoicing. It's like bride walking down the aisle. Finally, God does something for me. 
Jonah did not like his commission. He did not like the sailors. He did not like the boat. He did not like when he was thrown into the sea. He did not like when he was swallowed by the great fish. He did not like his second commission and he hated when people repented. And now he's pumped out of his mind that he has a plan. (laughs) For the first time in this entire story, Jonah is smiling. It doesn't last long, verse seven, but God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he will become faint and begged with all of his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. So now that God who had provided a great plant is providing this small worm to gnaw away at Jonah's shade giving plant. And then the Lord is going to raise the temperature, so to speak, and he appoints a scorching east wind, this Sirocco wind. We don't really understand what's happening here because we live in homes and sit behind computer screens. But these winds would put you in grave danger. It could be dangerous. And God is going to use this heat and use this wind to melt away Jonah's hypocritical shell. And in verse eight, Jonah is throwing himself a pity party. He begged with all of his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Think about this fussing, whining prophet. He's saying, I can't handle this God. I can't handle this heat and this wind. And I can't handle your mercy. Kill me. I mean, it says he begged with all of his soul to die. How does God respond? Well, again, God responds in a fashion that is consistent with his revealed character. And he asked Jonah another question. Then God said, verse nine to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have a good reason to be angry even to death. We're reaching both the climax and the conclusion of this book. And this question about the right to be angry is central here. God is asking Jonah, hey, Jonah, let me talk to you, bud. Did you create that plant? Does that plant have an eternal soul? Is that plant made in the image of you? Is that plant created for eternity? Jonah, riddle me this. How long have you been caring for that plant? Do you cause the sun to shine? Did you create photosynthesis, Jonah? No. That plant sprung up overnight. And you care more about the stinking plant than you do about people that are going to hell for all of eternity. Jonah cares more about temporal, inanimate objects than he does the eternal soul of the Ninevites. He's elated. He's rejoicing over the plant. And then he has great sorrow when it's taken away to the point of wanting to die. And he has zero sorrow over the fact that every single person amongst the Ninevites, if they don't repent, they will spend all of eternity in hell. This whole book is rising towards this question. Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah says, God, I have enough reason to be angry. I'm so angry I could die. Verse 10. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plan for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. God is exposing Jonah. And do you know what? God is exposing us. Jonah cares more for his own comforts. It says that it saved him from his discomfort. The plant did. He cares more about his comfort, more about his reputation than he does about being an agent of reconciliation to the enemies of God 
that they might become the children of God. Jonah is more willing to die for a plant than he is to live for lost people. Are you Jonah? Do you care more about your job, your hobbies, your safety, your reputation, your comforts than you do about seeing sinners reconciled to God? Let me ask you this. Is there anything more important or more concerning in your life than to see lost sinners come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You can know a lot, a lot, a lot of truth and be just as far from God as the Ninevites, if not further. The Ninevites respond and they are rejoicing that God shows mercy. And the people in the Bible like Jonah, know more about the word of God than anyone. But they don't share God's heart. When was the last time, and I'm preaching to myself, when was the last time you've lost sleep over the fact that everyone you know, I'm gonna use this term carefully, that does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, actually love him? I'm not saying, I'm not asking if they go to church, I'm not saying if they show up on Sundays. I'm asking, when was the last time you've lost sleep over the reality that every single person that does not love the Lord Jesus Christ will go to hell for all of eternity? And Jonah is spending his time consumed now that he lost his plant. And we laugh and giggle, but we do the same because in the short story of Jonah, we see the reflection of our own ugly heart that has been the recipients of God's mercy and are largely indifferent to extending that mercy to other people. God says in verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals. In scripture and in our world today, one of the most hard-hearted people some of the most hard-hearted people are the self-righteous. God says, should I not have compassion? Maybe in your Bibles that's translated pity. Do you know what that word means in Hebrew? It means tears in the eyes. There has never been a single person that's died apart from Christ of whose rejection of God did not grieve God. God is touched by human need. I want you to turn with me for a moment. It says that I should not have compassion. Turn with me as we begin to land the plane on this morning and really on our study in Jonah to Matthew 9 for a moment. Matthew 9, we're going to look at verse 36. It says in 936, speaking of Jesus, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Compassion. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Turn over to Matthew 14, verse 14. Following the beheading of John the Baptist, John, um, it says of Jesus in Matthew 14, 14, when he went to shore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. In Luke, it says that Jesus approaches the city and I can just read this for you in Luke 19, 41. When Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, he saw the city 
and he wept over it. Do you know that God is a just God? But he weeps over the plight of the lost. He looks out over the city. And I want you just to understand the heart of God. And he looks at it and weeps and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often did I want to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you reject me, you turn from me. And it's not a matter of indifference to God where people are going to spend eternity. He cares, do you? He weeps over the lost. He floods them with his tears in Ezekiel. And Jeremiah, he weeps over how hard-hearted they are. He's a compassionate God. Is there anything in your life that you're more concerned about than seeing sinners reconciled to God? Jonah has been chosen by God, has been the recipient of the kindness of God. He knows the mercy of God and he knew the truth of God, but he does not share in the heart of God. What a contrast between Jonah and his God. What a contrast between Jonah and the one who would come in Matthew 12 and say that he was the greater Jonah. The prophet Jonah was asking for fire from heaven, but the greater Jonah has a heart of mercy. The prophet Jonah won't lift a finger to help the lost, but the greater Jonah offered his life to seek and save the lost. The prophet Jonah doesn't remain in the city, but he distances, him, he distances his himself and prays that God would pour out his wrath. And the greater Jonah looks out over the city and weeps because he has a compassion for sinners. The earthly Jonah is a selfish prophet who doesn't think beyond himself. And the greater Jonah is a selfless king who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The earthly Jonah seeks destruction. The greater Jonah seeks reconciliation. The earthly Jonah thinks mercy is for saints. And the greater Jonah extends his mercy to sinners because mercy is not for saints. It is for sinners. I have to ask myself questions as I study. Does my life resemble the heart of God's at all? And does your life or my life provide tangible evidence that we care about what God cares about? I told you before, this is the only book in the Old Testament that ends on a question. And it's a question that must be answered by all of us. God is a God who wants to save sinners. And the only reason you and I have been left on planet Earth is to be a part of his kingdom work. We say, well, we're here to glorify God. The way you glorify God is by obeying God. And you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ to proclaim the message of reconciliation to those who are estranged from God. And when you do not live in conjunction with that reality, you rob yourself of joy because the joy of the Lord is extended to those who share in his joy of being a part of watching God save sinners. You cannot pass, possibly live the Christian life with capital J, joy, if you're not a part of his kingdom work. Secondly, it's a matter of obedience. It's 11.59, but you're gonna be here till 12.02, so listen here. I hope our church is known for multiple things, but I've grown up in an environment where the people that are the truth-preaching church are the least strategic and the least mindful of the lost. You know, like, I just see that, you know, like, it's like the, the people that maybe they're out there, they do, you know, they're not great in these areas, but they're really good at engaging the community. If we're gonna study the word of God, we should be the most strategic in reaching the lost. Because if you understand the heart of God as revealed in the word of God, 
you're going to understand. You might be a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, a businessman. I hope you dominate at all of those things. Do well. But you're primarily an ambassador. If there's one thing that should be true about our church, it's that we are longing to engage lost sinners. I hope that's us. Amen? Next week, we're going to have some missionaries here. I tried to time in a little bit because I just want, we don't have, we're a new church, we're really a young church. We're a fat baby church. <laughs> uh, but one of the things I want to do is I want you to see what God is doing in other parts around the world because Stonebridge is not just for us. I want to be used by God to build the kingdom of God around the world. And we're called to be a part of that and we get to be a part of that, okay? Let's pray. God, as I study Jonah, I'm convicted in ways that we care more about our comforts and our reputation and our safety than we do about your kingdom work. Lord, I pray that you would please, as Jonathan Edwards says, stamp eternity on our eyeballs. Would we see people with an eternal perspective? Would we look at people at Kroger and Publix and the pumpkin patch and go, they're going somewhere for eternity? One of two places. And if not us, then who? How will they know without a preacher? How will they know unless they hear? They won't. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Lord, you're a God of great mercy. And if we're in Christ, we are the recipients of that. And so, Lord, you've called those who have received your mercy to share in your joy of saving sinners. Lord, we're not promised um, an easy life, but we're promised an abundant one when we live in obedience. And so, Lord, I pray that one of the things that would mark our church is a burden for the lost. I pray that we would invite our friends and neighbors and into our homes, into our community groups. That's why we need more of them. And into our church and tell them about the reality of sin, the holiness of God, the justice of God, and oh, the mercy of God that is received by those who come in faith to Jesus Christ and believe in his death his resurrection, and his atoning work. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen.